The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 28th, 2015 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A new genealogical analysis, genealogical, I like that word, has found that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump our 19th cousins. This is amazing. This is unprecedented. Yeah, right. This happens every four years. Here, let's go back a few years. Bruce and Christine Hansen, Hawaii-based publishers of historical databases, trace back the family histories of George Bush and Democratic Senator John Kerry. The result, they're cousins. They're 16th cousins, three times removed. And this. Obama is related to not one, not two, but at least six U.S. presidents. And Obama was also related to Mitt Romney. I got a crazy, I got a crazy, crazy theory. You ready? Everyone's related. Because, I'm going to throw this further theory out there, we're all part of the same species with a common ancestor. Ah, Crazy, right? You heard it here first. Trump and Hillary are cousins. Well, you heard it here, but I heard it from 538, which sends out a really good newsletter called Significant Digits, and they link to The Hill, and The Hill, I'll quote the the website The Hill, they said that the genealogy website genie.com tells the entertainment show Extra that Trump and Hillary were related. So there you go. So you got it from me, you got it from 538, who got it from The Hill, who got it from Extra, who got it from Genie.com. So that is, I think, fifth or sixth generation reporting twice removed. But now we do know why Trump is really running for president. It's not because Bill Clinton called him and told him to help out his cousin Hillary. It's for the free genealogy research. You find out who your cousins are. It is valuable, valuable stuff on the show today. But first, I'm going to tell you about another show. It's a live show. It's The Gist Live, September 29th in Brooklyn. We've got all your regular Gist friends. And if you're there, you could be my friend. Not really. Please don't come up to me. But but enjoy the entertainment. Check it out at slate.com slash NYC Gist. More info at the end of the show. Tickets available for everyone right now. Slate.com slash NYC Gist. And really on the show today, it is an Antan twig. But to get there, we have to go through a thicket of ditties known as the number one songs of 1980. Cool was still with the gang. The captain had yet to jettison Tennille. I don't even know if that ever happened. I know that air supply was in full supply. Here now, Chris Malamphy with the number one hits. A look at the charts of the 1980 number one hits on the Billboard charts would indicate it is something of a span year. The 70s were ending, but is there really evidence that the 1980s had started musically in 1980? Well, here to comb through the historic record is, in fact, the historic records and the historical records is Chris Malamphy, who writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. When he comes along, we take a year and we talk about all the number one songs for us. Hey, Chris. How you doing, Mike? I'm pretty good. All right. So 1980, this was a year I distinctly remember. I remember what was on the radio, my babysitter's radio. But let's start where the year started, Casey and the Sunshine Band. So this does indicate it really is the 70s still in a way. So, yeah, I mean, as we've said several times in this series that we've been doing, I I really enjoy it when we do what I call interstitial years or yeah. cusp years or what, what have you. And 1980 is absolutely one of those years. It's, it's a betwixt and between year. It's a year that basically exists in the aftermath of disco. 
Disco is in the process of dying, like a dying star. Disco is is fading throughout this year. And uh, what you see right from the beginning of the year is, is, you know, acts that were you know, leftovers or refugees from the 1980s, excuse me, from the 1970s, from the disco era. Casey and the Sunshine Band were, when when you and I did the 1975 segment, they were a prime mover in uh, the second half of the 70s. They scored four number one hits from 1975 to 1977, and they were all up-tempo disco records. This last one is absolutely the anomaly in the bunch. It's their fifth number one hit. It's called Please Don't Go. It's a very slow, frankly, kind of drippy ballad. It spends just one week at number one, and it's it's, it's almost like a resigned sigh at the end of the, the 70s. And it's, it's you know, uh, Harry Casey uh, doing a, a tender ballad that has sort of disco instrumentation, but is way different from anything else he topped the charts with before. Captain and Tennille, not exactly disco, but exactly 70s. Absolutely. There's another example, right? I and mean, they asked us to do it to them one more time. And in fact, we did in 1980. <sighs> yeah. Does that that song you ook you out as much as it does me? That that, that song has always left me feeling a well, little Well, it depends funny. what the that is. Send this song to number one. Do that to me one more time. Sure, Captain. Right. Sure, I guess Tenille. you could say it's yeah. a prequel to that meatloaf song, but I won't do that. Right. right. What is that exactly? Let, let's not think too hard about that. Well, we've got to move on. And so now we start talking about groups to me that were the 80s. Blondie, call me. Right. What's great about Blondie is that Blondie had four number one hits and all four of them are different from each other. Their first number one hit famously in 79 was Heart of Glass, which was a pure disco song, which in and of itself was remarkable because Blondie were one of the prime CBGBs, you know, punk acts. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they were contemporaries of everybody from the Ramones to Talking Heads. And then they had their first number one hit with this disco song. Uh, then Call Me is this other animal entirely. It's also danceable, but it's got more of a rock edge. It was written and originally conceived uh, for the movie American Gigolo by Giorgio Moroder. How do you do what you in? How do you seduce all these women? Nominally, the rest of Blondie plays on it, but it's almost like a Debbie Harry solo hit. Debbie Harry co-wrote it with Giorgio Moroder. It's his track. It's her lyrics. It's kind of a showcase for her belting it out. So it's kind of a, a dance rock hybrid record. By the way, it's the number one record of 1980. It spent six weeks at number one. It was the biggest hit of the year. Two 
Two great English rock groups took songs to number one in 1984, weeks or each for, I think, four or five weeks. Queen went to number one with Crazy Little Thing Called Love and a group you do not expect to have number one records, even though they sell so many albums. Pink Floyd's another brick in the wall. All in all, it's just a brick in the wall. I'd like to point out for those who regard Pink Floyd as an avatar of, you know, rock the way it rocks, the song basically has a disco beat. I think it, it caught on for a couple of reasons. It, it's got that children's chorus, which is chilling and creepy and weird and memorable and catchy in its own odd way. It's almost as if Pink Floyd accidentally stumbled their way into a number one hit uh, at, at the moment that the 70s were becoming the 80s. So Queen sent two songs to number one, Crazy Little Thing Called Love uh, was number one for four weeks. And then later, and you want to talk about an English rock group with a disco beat, another one bites the dust. That bass line is very disco. Absolutely. Uh, let, let's talk about Crazy Little Thing Called Love first. Interestingly, the only two number one hits uh, Queen have ever had in America were smaller hits in England. It, it's almost as if we in America like their most anomalous hits. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's hard to say that any song Queen ever had was a typical Queen song because what was so interesting about Queen was how different so many of their songs sounded. Right. Goodness knows Bohemian Rhapsody doesn't sound like Tie Your Mother Down, doesn't sound like We Will Rock You. But they never did another rockabilly song quite like Crazy Little Thing Called Love and they never did another funk song quite like Another One Bites the Dust. It's, it's their two most bizarre left field songs were their two biggest hits in America and neither one of them was even a number one hit in their native England. Kenny Rogers went to number one as well. Yeah, Kenny Rogers. What's interesting about 1980, by the way, is that it's the year of the movie Urban Cowboy. So we're about to see country music have uh, a greater pop presence than it's had in a while on the charts. But Lady, the number one song that Kenny had in 1980, his first pop number one, is an even stranger record than that because it's a song written by Lionel Richie. Kenny's famous quote is, uh, I thought that Lionel could come from R&B and I could come from country and we would meet somewhere in pop. And that's precisely what it is. It's this very slow, dramatic, oddly soulful adult contemporary ballad that brings the drama at every turn. And if you know that it's a Lionel Richie composition, you you can hear it and you'll never hear the song the same way again if you think to yourself, oh, wait, Lionel Richie wrote this. And <laughs> it, it's got this much twang in it, just a slight bit of twang in the guitar. And otherwise, for all the world, it could have been an R&B hit, a pop hit. And oh, we belong you believe in my song 
that and that was number one for six weeks. And the three weeks before that song was Barbara Streisand's "Woman in Love." Dentist office must have been just thrilled about the last few months in 1980. Exactly. There was this period for, uh, in late 1980 where yeah, these kind of uh, sultry, uh, smooth uh, adult Sail, contemporary sailing ballads by Christopher Cross. Yeah. That helps no, it, you n- 1980 the was partially a rockier, and it was yeah. partially a middle of the road, up the middle adult contemporary pop kind of year. By the way, the mastermind behind that record is Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. The entire Barbara Streisand Guilty album is like a Bee Gees album in disguise. At the very moment that the Bee Gees, frankly, can't get arrested on the charts anymore, Barry Gibb is finding work and infiltrating the radio in other ways. John Lennon, the last weeks of 1980, he charts with uh, just like starting over. And this was like two weeks after Mark David Chapman killed him. And that's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's a posthumous number one hit. This number one hit can almost entirely be attributed to the outpouring of grief. It was already doing quite well. Oh, okay. And uh, just like starting over is basically an homage to the 50s kind of doo-wop records that Lennon grew up with. It is uh, just like Crazy Little Thing Called Love by Queen. It's, it's, a, it's a record indebted to uh, a sound from 30 years earlier, or 25 years earlier. Unfortunately, you know, given the title, just like starting over, it, yeah. it became bitterly ironic when it went to number one. Yeah. Mark David Chapman got his copy of Double Fantasy signed the night or like maybe a few hours before he shot John Lennon. Exactly. Although our love is still special Let's take a chance and fly away Somewhere alone Basically, 1980 is the year that disco went underground. It didn't disappear. Contrary to popular belief, the word disco became a dirty word, but dance music obviously didn't go away. But it's the year where everybody is sort of trying to figure out how can I get a hit, be current with whatever's going on in dance culture, and yet, you know, not say the the dirty five-letter word disco. Yeah. Uh, Think about it, Still Rock and Roll to Me by Billy Joel, for example, right? This is a song that... He doesn't even mention disco, which is funny because in the lyrics he talks about punk, he talks about funk, he talks about new wave. But it's a song that exists because Billy is sort of reacting to the currents of the time. And that's what a lot of the songs of this year are all about. It's about reacting to what was in the air. Do you know that It's Still Rock and Roll to Me is one of only two songs in the history of the Billboard charts to have the phrase rock and roll in the title? Is that right? Yes. That I had never heard that tidbit before. Can right? you name the other song? 
Right, and we're not talking about rock around the clock. No, nope, because there's no and roll in that, right? Yes. I'm thinking that it happened just a couple years later, and it was I Love Rock and Roll by Joan Jett. It was! That's why Chris Malamphy comes in to discuss the greatest number one songs of a year. This year was 1980. Chris also writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate. Thank you, Chris. It is still all rock and roll to me, Mike. How about a pair of pink sidewinders and a bright orange pair of pants? Well, you could really be a boy from a baby if you just give it half a chance. Don't waste your money on a new set of speakers. You get more mileage from a cheap pair of sneakers. Next phase, new wave, dance craze. Anyway, it's still rock and roll to me. Now I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts on the Panoply Network, The Vulture TV Podcast. I graze it, not because it's not always great, but I don't watch all the shows, and you know what? I'm just not going to listen to a podcast about a show I'm never going to watch. But if there is a show I do watch, it has never let me down. You know, I came into watching Wet Hot American Summer, and I was like, this is supposed to be good, this is supposed to be good, this isn't that good. And then I listened to the TV Vulture Podcast, and Matt Zeller Sites agrees with me, and that was very nourishing to my soul. But then they analyzed why Key and Peele was also great. So what they do is they take a bunch of shows and there's a time code and you know what shows they're going to talk about, but they have big, broader, global topics that are really great across the board. It is the best TV podcast out there. I say that without reservation. Check out the Vulture TV podcast on the Panoply Network. And now the spiel it's an Antan Twig. Every three weeks we convene an Antan Twig because Antan Twig means three weeks. It's an old English word with a new American twist. It's just invented, but Cambridge Department of Classics approved. The Cambridge Department of Classics is a wholly owned subsidiary of Pescorp and is in no way associated with Cambridge University, Cambridge University Press, any American universities based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or A Bridge Too Far starring Michael Caine. Anyway, we get letters. Letters, we get letters. Quite a few segments irked listeners this week. No, not when I talked about gun control or abortion or how America's stupid. I mean, those got good letters. <laughs> it wasn't the third rails that shocked people. In fact, listen to this one. One listener wrote in, and he was upset when Maria Konnikova and I, what he, he interpreted as, we joked about a certain scholarly journal. Let's get a peer review first. <laughs> and I know you're the one who comes to me with the studies, but I just want to quote a study I came across on this mm -hmm. subject, a paper from the Iranian Journal of Nursing and Midwifery Research. They compared... Two different creams, one had garlic, one didn't. Seemed that the garlic cream was effective or as effective as the other cream, but it was a really poorly designed study and there was no follow-up. I guess the Iranian midwives have other priorities. I'm going to have to cancel my subscription. Iranian Journal of Nursing and Midwifery Research. Only on the gist. I think that's my new favorite journal, Mike. This is from Madiar, subject... Typical American BS and arrogance. Mike, making fun of the Iranian Journal of Midwifery by you and your guest is a testament to the sheer arrogance demonstrated by Americans and known to the entire world except to the Americans themselves. It's fascinating how self-assured and arrogant and ignorant some people could be. I'm sorry I even took the time to write this as I have an exam to prepare for. I took this comment in stride 
I did not, since it was written and submitted in email form, did not know if midwifery was actually pronounced midwifery. It has been submitted to me that it should be called midwifery. If it is, then I whiffed on that. We weren't talking about pronunciation, though. We are talking about American arrogance. So what I did, this, this emailer, he is Iranian. So what I did is I conjured, I tried to channel the great Persian poet Rumi, and I wrote to him. I meant no aspersions nor to cause strife, I apologize to the Persians and to every midwife. And I thought that would take care of it. But it hardly satisfied Madiar, who wrote, no need to apologize. Just don't make fun of the people who've been under severe U.S. sanctions for decades. Best Madiar. Now, I did not continue the correspondence, but if I had, I'd have written, I think you mistook my tone a mite. It was less derisive and more delight. And I might suggest that Iranians would be freer if the mullah's ambitions weren't so nuclear. Anyway, that was the only objection, the only real objection I got to the Journal of Iranian Midwifery, let's say. Do you know the topic that really got people riled up? And again, I wasn't putting it down. I think they misinterpreted my comments. I was more delighted by it. Guano. I was talking about how guano was a huge driver of our foreign policy. It was a very important source of fuel, and it once originated in a bird's ass. That is true. To be clear, some guano was once bat guano or originated in a bat's ass. So why did listeners think I was cramping all over guano? Marcus Maurer wrote, in the spiel, you were dismissive of guano-related negotiations in the 19th century. Guano was really very important before Fritz Haber developed nitrogen fixation to create modern fertilizers. And Sam B. wrote, and he told me just to call him Sam B. so people wouldn't know he was writing in such high dudgeon about guano. I could not let your casual dismissal of the importance of guano in 19th century politics stand. Blah, 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 blah. Help a fertilizer, blah, blah, blah. fix nitrogen, blah, blah, blah. the Haber-Bosch process, blah, blah, blah. certain salts in the Atacama Desert, blah, blah, blah. cupcakes, meatballs, blah, blah, blah. gods, guns, and guano. But let's return to the top of the letter. Here's how Sam B., a man bold enough to write me, very upset, but doesn't want me to use his last name. Fine. Here's how he starts the letter. I'm not the kind of person who writes into podcasts. Wait, isn't that how Penthouse Forum always starts? But it got me to wondering, what's worse? The letter that starts off with, I usually don't write letters with that. Or the letter that ends with, you know what? I can't believe I even wrote to you. I got an exam to take. I mean, at either point, the guy could either stop writing or he could have deleted it afterwards. So I'm just going to insist that all future correspondence contain the phrase, I am writing of my own free will and accord. Actually, that's clearly implied. Mistakes. I make mistakes. We all make mistakes, sometimes big, sometimes small. For instance, I was talking about the spouses of current presidential candidates. said Bobby Jindal was married to a chemical engineer, and Hillary Clinton was married to a former president of the United States, and Marco Rubio was married to a former Miami Dolphin cheerleader. Yeah, I said, Barbie only makes one of those professions, and it ain't chemical engineer. Ah, but Chris Collins pointed out that there is a presidential Barbie. Now, I would argue... There might be a President Barbie, but there's no President Ken, because we're talking about Bill Clinton, so that would be the perfect analogy. But if there were a President Ken, would he be unelectable, or would his lack of genitalia make him scandal-proof? Something to think about. 
Also, I was talking about Sesame Street going to HBO and HBO bragging that they would be doubling the number of episodes of Sesame Street. But then I did a little math and noted, all right, they're doubling the number of episodes, but every episode's now going to be a half hour. So that's really not double. It's kind of the same. Well, it turns out it's not the same. David Folkenflick, media reporter, gentleman, friend of the gist, pointed out that it's not the same. See, what he did was he badgered the poor spokesman for Sesame Street. She's really just a rectangular foam head with googly eyes and a tongue sewn into her mouth. But he learned something. He learned that the amount of content of Sesame Street would double. Because I didn't know this, the hour-long episodes that have been airing up until now, up until HBO got involved, half of those episodes, a half hour, is old recycled content. So there actually is going to be twice as much new content. Now, I don't know how Sesame Street is going to find sponsors unless they find a new letter somewhere between S and T. But you know what? That's really more of a snuffleupagus problem than a me problem. And finally, Mark Horowitz wrote in, at the beginning of a segment in your show, you noted the similarities between The Karate Kid and Rocky. Yeah, I said they had the same writer, the same director, the same composer, but Horowitz points out that John Aldvidson did direct both, but Stallone wrote Rocky and Mark Kamen wrote Karate Kid. True. Thank you. Good correction. Composer Bill Conti did do the scores for both. And I think the Karate Kid score, or as Andrea says, the Karate Kid, I think the Karate Kid score worked well. But the Rocky score is transcendent, exquisite. We all know Gonna Fly Now, but in that final scene where Rocky goes the distance, remember? What you think about when the 15th round when you're coming out? What Rocky? And Rocky shouts for Adrian, and Adrian shouts for Rocky. Where are you, Adrian? Where's Rocky? Well, he's the guy who's bleeding in the middle of the ring. Adrian should have figured that one out. Apollo wins. It's awesome. Same bit of music used at the very end of Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, when he ended communism. Not Rocky 5, but Rocky 6, a.k.a. Rocky Balboa. It is such good music, it could prop up anything. Did we mention Rocky 6? No, but I mean anything. Uh, I'll have the uh, mushroom and Swiss thick burger and medium fries. Oh, that'll be $7.51. Actually, I have a coupon! It's a coupon! Hardee's goes wild! Talia Shire is walking around stunned! There won't be a rematch! Thick burger! Thick burger! Okay, reset. Oh, man. Give me a little shower sound effect. Oh, man, I'm out of conditioner. Wait a minute. This Prell, it's shampoo and conditioner. It has conditioner. 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 Italia Shire is wandering around the shower, wiping off the fog. Prell, Prell, conditioner. Reset. Man, I really don't know if I should send in this very pointed email. I mean, the Iranian Journal of Midwifery is notorious for their studies being hard to replicate. And as a journal without peer, in my opinion, it is hard to peer review. What? He read it? He read it during the Antan Twig? Iranian midwives vindicated! Talia Shire, what are you doing here in my internal monologue? Midwife! Midwife! All right, enough of that. Let's go to the Lobstar. Our award for the most outstanding listener email, Facebook, or interactor So I'm listening to my favorite baseball podcast, Effectively Wild by Baseball Prospectus. The show starts off, and the talk comes around to pretty quickly, as talk inevitably comes around to on any podcast, ways to weigh and ship your mail. I, I do have my own personal uh, in-home scale. 
but it is not from like a promotion of stamps.com, I'm sorry to say. Funny, and also a sponsor. So maybe I should check out stamps.com. And then Sam Miller, baseball prospectus editor. You got ducks on the pond, drive them in. I don't have stamps.com, but I, I did get Harry's razors just almost exclusively to support the gist, because I hardly ever shave. And it's great. It's really good. Like Harry's razors, like legit, full support. Mike Pesca really appreciates them. Use the coupon code the gist or the gist, yeah, or maybe just gist. <laughs> not for this podcast, probably but just for gist. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, so we got another podcast that I listen to because I really like it. To just do an ad for us, and I didn't even know about it. Not only did they do an ad for us, they gave out our coupon code. Ben, Sam, Eric, I can't give you $5 off your first purchase. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I can. Actually, I can. But the important thing that I could give you and the staff of the Effectively Wild podcast, I award you the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, won't take you to Funky Town. She's only going as far as Boogieville. But from there, you could get on the right on ferry to get down Sylvania. Managing producer Joel Meyer likes pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. He likes making love at midnight and marks his territory by urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, or biting on trees. Ah, good times. It's the anti-penultimate day for him. As for our executive producer, his mama named him Andy Bowers, but folks just called him Yella. And the Gist Live will be September 29th in Brooklyn. Matthew Dix telling a story. Adam Davidson telling you about economics. Giving you stock tips for all I know. Chris Malamphy. You like that segment? You might like the live segment. You might not. I don't know. I'm just saying might. And audience members will submit their Is That Bullshit question. Maria Konnikova will vet them. Zoe Chase is going to be there. We talk today. Basically, I'm just inviting my friends on stage and we're going to talk. It'll be a great time. There's also a cocktail party beforehand. If you want in on that, you can get in. Slate.com slash NYC gist. The gist. Some say the gist. It is a razor that leaves your soul to bleed with a $5 off coupon code. Find out more by listening to baseball podcasts or tipping the shoeshine guy who might have an inside track on how to get a coupon. Yes, the gist. We're pioneering a marriage of advertising and geocaching. It's just crazy enough to work. Thanks for listening. <laughs>